Morning. Uh, well, I want to just tell you a little bit about uh, what's going to happen today as far as the preaching of God's Word. So today we have the privilege of hearing uh, four men preach about the incomparable Christ. Now, uh, why are we calling Christ the incomparable Christ? Well, it's because what we want you to see today is that there is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one more wonderful, more glorious, and more worthy of our praise. So what we want to do today is to present him to you as he is revealed in Scripture. And so we're going to do it this way. We're going to first talk about the pre-existence of Christ. Then we're going to talk about the deity of Christ. And then we're going to talk about the humanity of Christ. And then finally, the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And we hope that the, at the end of today, you will see that Jesus is like no other. He is the only one who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. So what I'd like you to do now is just take just a few moments to prepare your hearts for the preaching of God's word. And I'd like to invite Andrew Martin to come up and begin the preaching. Please join me in prayer. Father, we come before you today trying, Lord, to gain some insight into the truth of your Son. Father, your Son is incomparable. Uh, Lord, Lord, your Son died for us. Uh, and so, Lord, may this uh, truth, Lord, that we are attempting to learn, uh, may it be beneficial for our walks, Lord. Uh, may, it, may it apply to us, Lord, uh, just throughout our uh, Christian life. Um, and, and, and Father, I pray for myself and the three men following me, Lord, uh, just that it will not be our cleverness or our creativity that uh, stands out, Lord, uh, while we present your word, uh, but, just that, um, but just that it will be your glory that stands out. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. Recently, we celebrated Christmas on December 25th which is the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. However, this is not the point of Jesus' creation. In fact, Jesus was never created because he was eternally pre-existent. This is the topic that I will be discussing today, Jesus' pre-existence. And specifically, we will be proving that Christ was eternally pre-existent. Pre-existence is defined as existence previous to something else. It refers to the real, personal, pre-incarnate existence of Jesus Christ before he came to earth and took on flesh. It is something that Christians have always believed and is foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is. I would like to explain why this doctrine is important and how exactly it impacts our daily walks. But first, I would like to take a moment to to defend the pre-existence of Christ. The fact that Christ has always existed even before he took on flesh. Now, to prove this to you, we are going to look at three passages of Scripture that defend his pre-existence. The first being Philippians 2, 6-8. We'll start at verse 6. <clears throat> Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went from, verse 6, being in the form of God, which means that he was by nature 
God to emptying himself in verse 7 and to finally verse 8, being found in a human form for the purpose of dying on the cross. This is the very clear evidence of Jesus existing on this earth, but also him pre-existing in his divine nature before his existence on earth. Something to note here, as opposed to what a Jehovah's Witness might believe, where they would believe that Jesus might have existed before his incarnation, uh, but they would say that possibly he existed as a lesser God and certainly not the God and member of the Trinity. And they would also believe that after his incarnation that Jesus was a mere human and not God in human flesh. They will also deny the truth that Jesus did not lose his divine status when he was born on earth. And they will deny that Jesus had two natures at once, his divine nature and his human nature. And now we will look at two additional passages of scripture that assure us of Jesus' preexistence. Not just that he did exist in some previous state for some amount of time before his incarnation and the beginning of his ministry on earth, but that his pre-existence was eternal as the second person of the Trinity, as the Son of God. First, let's take a look at John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The phrase, in the beginning here in verse 1, parallels that of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Since the beginning of time and space, there was, past tense, the Word. The Word referenced here was and was and was always there. The Word was with God, in presence and harmony with Him, and the Word was God. And all things were made through Him. Contrary to the Jehovah's Witness belief, the Word was there, the Word was the Creator, and the word was God, but it was also with God. Who is this word? Let's jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Pause. This is referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's continue. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's only begotten son. And so if Jesus is the Son of the Father, then he's also the word referenced back in verse 1, who is God. This set of verses explicitly shows us that Jesus was always there since the beginning. We also see a case for Jesus' pre-existence in John 12. Specifically in John 12's reference to Isaiah 6. In John 12 verses 36 to 43, a section that is titled in your Bibles as the unbelief of the people, John states in this chapter that the people did not believe in Jesus despite miracles being performed in front of them. John then quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and says that Jesus was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that Israel's hearts would be hardened despite the many signs performed in front of them. John quotes this portion of Isaiah 6, a portion that is right after Isaiah describes how in a vision he saw the glory of the Lord while sitting on a throne. And John makes the connection between Jesus and the Lord on the throne by saying in chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John is tying Jesus with the Lord on the throne in his full glory in the vision in Isaiah back in the Old Testament. John is saying Jesus is God. John is saying that Jesus' glory is what was envisioned back then in the Old Testament and that Jesus was 
preexistent then before he came to Israel in his human form. If Christ were not preexistent, preexistent, then he would not have the authority to be our savior. If he was not there in the beginning, since before the beginning, if he was not there when Israel was in the wilderness, he could not be God. Then he could not be eternal and thus not our savior. But Christ declares in John 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. I think this is all and well, and perhaps you have followed along so far. I think the text is pretty clear on his pre-existence. Jesus was there. But lest we just think that this is some irrelevant head knowledge, I would like to take, I, I would like to point out two takeaways that I've come across, and perhaps there are more, about how Christ's pre-existence impacts our daily walks. The first one is marvel in his magnitude. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The verse here emphasizes Jesus being the Father's only Son. Can you imagine the pain that Abraham felt when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine how much Abraham loved Isaac? The pain he felt as he came to terms with the idea of having to cause his son suffering, the thought of causing his son suffering, even with the belief and God's ability to raise Isaac from the dead, if necessary, must have been agonizing. But that's what God did. This is God's only son, whom he loved, whom he shared in glory with. This is the son who experienced his wrath on the cross for us, a sacrifice of the divine for the fallen sinner. Without the preexistence of Christ, the phrase, his only son, would lose its profound significance. Christ's preexistence highlights that he willingly laid aside the glory he shared with the Father since eternity past to endure the cross on our behalf. Christ gave up something of immeasurable worth for a fallen and undeserving humanity by taking on human nature. The magnitude of what Christ gave up, of how the Father gave his only Son, should encourage us. Never doubt God's love for you. The words in John 3.16 are not empty. They are full of incomparable sacrifice on your behalf. They are filled with a totally immeasurable love. Before you consider sinning, remember that love that went into, that went into paying for your sins. When you feel distant from God, remember the vast distances that Christ crossed on your behalf. The Second point is to exult in his everlasting nature. Christ is everlasting in all aspects of his being. He has existed before time, and he will exist until and beyond the end of time. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This verse underscores the eternal nature of Christ and, the eternal nature of Christ and, and his unwavering consistency. God's love for you will always be there. You will always be able to rest in him. He set out on a plan to save you. You lost sheep from when he was pre-existent in eternity. And even now, he intercedes on your behalf at the right hand of the Father, currently bearing the marks of the nails that held him to the cross because of your sin. 
and he will be there for you in all aspects that he promised. Like in Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can keep you from his love. His love is here for you now and will be there for you when you see his glory face to face in heaven for the rest of eternity. Jesus is eternal and so are the promises of rest, love, and peace that he gives us. All in all, Christ's preexistence shows us the depth of what exactly Christ gave up in it, of what exactly Christ gave up in his pursuit to save us from our sin, and it solidifies that Christ will always be there for us. No matter the circumstance, his love will always be there for you and is accessible for you. Praise God. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Um, a lot of the verses they use are the same verses I'm using. <laughs> However, uh, I'm going to look at it in a different way. My, uh, my section or my... Um, oh my God. Can you hear me? All right. I'm going to look at... We're going to look at and study the deity of Christ. But before we get into that, there's a couple of definitions that I would like to lay flat and lay clear so that we may understand and move on the same path. The first uh, definition that we're going to look at is deity. The second would be logos, and the third would be with. Deity, logos, and with. The term deity, with the help of Strong's Concordance, is simply defined as supreme being simply defined as God. It's simply defined the essence of God being God. When we look at John chapter 1, verse 1, all of you may be familiar with it already. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, "In, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The term word there is defined as logos. Logos literally means word, but it's a little bit uh, deeper than that. The word logos means a little bit more than that. The word logos is defined as God. The word logos is defined as the word of God. The word logos is defined as the mind of God. Someone says, in the beginning was the word In the beginning, same thing that was in uh, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the mind of God. In the beginning was the word of God. In the beginning was the logos. And the word was with God. The logos was with God. And the word was God. Uh, A famous uh, uh, Greek uh, mathematician by by the name of... uh, Pythagoras, he put together the Pythagorean theorem. Many of you have learned it or heard of it in school. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. The Pythagorean theorem, Pythagoras says that the law of logos in math is the reason why math works. The law of creation, the law of of, of, of God creating is the reason why creation works. 
It's the reason why God is. In the very next breath, in the same verse, it says, and he says the word logos was God. So in a sense, logos is distinguished from God. And at the same time, God, and, and at the same time, he is God. And at the same time, he was God. Here we have an eternal, self-existing logos that is in the same, that is in the same breath, uh, uh, another sense, identified as God. We know that the logos is Jesus Christ because when we scroll down to the same chapter in John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, it describes the flesh. It describes how God became flesh. What's interesting, though, we define the uh, deity. We define logos. What's interesting is a very small word in that same passage, the word with. With the help of strong concordance, I looked it up, and there's, there's, there's quite a few words that describes the word with. And the first one is sun, S-U-N. It translated into English as S-Y-N. My sons may not know this, but um, back in the day, we would come up together. All the boys in the, in the neighborhood would come up together. It was like, hey, let's synchronize our watches together, and we've got to come back today at 3.30 at this same spot. Today, nobody synchronizes watches. Everything's on satellite time. Everybody has an iPhone. So let's synchronize our watches. We'll be here at 3.01 at the same spot. That's with. So we all come back together and meet together, congregate together with each other. That's the first definition of with. The second definition of with is para, P-A-R-A. You may find it in, uh, in English language as paragraph or parallel. When we used to, uh, my family now lives in, uh, we still li- we live in Glen Cove, Long Island, but we used to live in um, downtown Manhattan. And many times people would come to see us and they couldn't, re- uh, they couldn't figure out how to find us. So I would tell them that we're down, all the way down in the financial district, there's Wall Street and we're parallel to Wall Street on Pine Street. Very easy to find. We're parallel to Pine Street. That's the second definition of with. So we got the first definition of with, which is, uh, which is sun, synchronize. The second definition of with, which is para, parallel. But the most important definition of with is pros, P-R-O-S, as in prosopone. You know, um, when I think of that, prosopone in ancient Greek means face. It means mask. So back in, uh, in ancient times, uh, in ancient Greek theater, the actors would have a mask. The mask would signify their emotions. The mask would signify their, um, uh, 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 their feeling. The mask would signify the character that they're playing. The mask would signify who they are. So pros or prosopone means face. So when we look at the John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God, this verse is describing the closest possible relationship that the Logos has with God. 
The closest possible relationship that two beings can have is a face-to-face relationship. The closest possible relationship. So at the same time, he is God. At the same time, he's with God. But at the same time, he's face-to-face with God. That's the deity of Christ. Christ is God. That's the, that's, 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 that the deity of his, of Christ is his identity. So this verse, John chapter one, verse one, I keep on going back to it. We read it all the time, but that verse is just so powerful. It's giving, it's telling us, it's showing us a peak of who he is. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So here, we see that the proper way that we should be looking at it, it's not synchronized, it's not next to or alongside, but it's face to face. Jesus Christ is face-to-face with God, and at the same time, he is God. A couple of applications. Jesus is God. If we can't understand that, we can't even move forward. To not understand the deity of Christ, the Bible that you're reading, the Bible that you're studying, would not make any sense. Second application. Jesus is the reason for all creation and the reason behind all creation. All of this exists because of Christ. All of this exists because of Christ. All of this exists because of Christ. Application number three. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the life. To be at the right hand of God is only through Christ Jesus. Amen. Good morning, church. My topic today is breaking down the incarnation and humanity of Christ. Uh, the incarnation is the term that refers to the su- supernatural act where the eternal divine son from the father, by agency of the spirit, took in a human nature apart from sin. As a result, The Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, now and forevermore exists as one person, two natures. Meaning, Jesus, who is fully God, condescended and took on flesh. This concept is referred to in multiple multiple parts throughout the New Testament. For example, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As well as 1 Timothy 3.16 says, he was manifested in the flesh. The Bible refers to the flesh multiple times as an attribute of the Son. It's important to note that this incarnation, this taking on the flesh or taking on humanity is added onto the Son. This is addition, not subtraction, division, or substitution. Jesus, fully God, is also fully man. A fancy word every North Shore after-school child knows to be as hypostatic union. (laughs) An infinite God in perfect union as finite man, one being two distinct natures. This fulfills scripture. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Merry belated Christmas. But why design it this way? First, let's break down Jesus' humanity into two parts, outer humanity and inner humanity. Let's look at Jesus' outer humanity. Jesus had a physical body. He was born on the earth like all humans do. Luke 2.7 says, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, and he grew up like all human beings, beginning as a baby into childhood into teenage years, adulthood to about 30 years of age. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As a human, Jesus also had physical needs. He hungered, he was thirsty, he slept when he was tired. He even lived under the law of the times. Jesus developed and grew like all human beings, physically. Without his growth, it would not make Jesus the all-sufficient Savior. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that that he might become, become implying the the growth, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. His outer human nature shows Christ coming into this world to accomplish God's plan as a man, and that qualifies him to be our mediator to God. Now let's look at Jesus' inner humanity. Jesus had his own mind, will, and soul. He experienced life as we all do. The New Testament is filled with Jesus going through the full range of human emotions. He loved and had compassion when he saw his people harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd in Matthew. He got angry when he healed the man with the withered hand as the cold-hearted Pharisee silently looked on in Mark, was surprised when he marveled at the centurion's faith, and was disappointed when his sheep only sought him for his miracles, experienced weariness as he seeked water in Samaria, and experienced grief at the death of Lazarus. Jesus wept. Jesus' outer and inner humanity come together in full display at the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 39, at Jesus' praise, he says, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's expressing his human aversion from the pain that is set before him. He was distressed and troubled, so much so that his soul was sorrowful even to death. This is the inner humanity of a man who is face to face with his cruel, unfair death, one who has committed no sin to die for the death of his enemies. And his outer humanity comes into play as his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. By every means, his human will screams to save himself, but... Our Savior instead aligns his human will with the will of the Father, submitting himself and embracing his messianic mission. Jesus, without his humanity, the garden and many other recordings of Christ would be empty and lifeless in its effect. It's only by Jesus' humanity do we have a proper human representative to take our place to suffer and die for our sins. So why be human? Why did God design Jesus to come in the form of man? not an angel or some talking lion? Why didn't the divine son come as a divine being to destroy death? Why use a feeble man to be the savior of humanity? Number one, Jesus became human to fulfill God's intention for humanity. Jesus, with his humanity, is the last and the true and better Adam. 
In Hebrews, the author makes the point that we humans have an exalted position by God, but we fell. And we do not rule and we do not live as fully as God made us to be. Jesus was the only person in history to live as God's intended humanity, in God intended humanity to live. Hebrews 2.10 says, Christ's experience on this earth made him perfect through suffering. Through Jesus, we can be properly restored. To not only give us this status, but also to pave the path that we can follow to glory. He was someone who was incarnated, lived a perfect life, suffered, and died. Number two, Jesus became human to destroy the devil and the power of death. Death was the effect of our disobedience to God. The Son incarnated in the appearance of none other man, and more than just incarnating in our appearance, he put on genuine, full humanity to win the day. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Number three, Jesus became human to become a merciful high priest. The Son had to become one with us in every way so that he may redeem us in every way. Jesus put on humanity so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To be an effective, merciful, and faithful high priest, Christ had to become flesh, experience our human condition fully and perfectly without sin. This is some of the many reasons why the Son's incarnation was necessary. Applications for you guys. Three applications to close. One, get to know Christ. Join a Bible reading plan. Ed insisted last week the helpfulness of joining one. Some of you even received an email to follow along. Join it. Youth group. There's even a plan created for you, made by our very own youth director. Shameless plug. (laughs) Youth group in the crowd, please join. Knowing the Bible isn't an option or an extra credit in our walks. Peter says to grow in the grace of knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing more and more about our Savior will help ensure that we will be changed by him. Number two, seek comfort in Jesus' humanity. The Son of God condescended into a human, fully in his inner and outer humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. His exact temptations may be different from us. We won't be tempted to turn rocks into bread. We don't have that power. If you do, please contact Breakfast Ministry. (laughs) Your services are needed. A lot of mouths to feed. Um, But... Look to how Jesus, in his humanity, depends on the Father, relies on the power of the Spirit, glorifying God in all he does. As Gregory of Nazianza said, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. So go to Jesus and seek comfort in him. Remember, his humanity affirms to us that he can sympathize with us. And last application, be truly human. Popular culture today will try to guide us and embrace a sinful identity to what they would call an authentic human. But Christ is the true example of being an authentic human as God intended it to be. Our sin isn't our identity, and it's not essential in our human experience. It's a curse, and it's a corruption. And there's no way to fight it without Christ. If you don't know Christ and you do not know the gospel, you are defenseless. So be truly human. Follow the incomparable Christ. Look at his humanity and believe. I'll close with Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. Galatians 2, 19 through 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My message this morning will be examining how union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection enables communion with, with God. So this union, being joined to Christ, and then communion, how we relate to Christ. And that's what we'll be examining and seeing how this is good news and why this is such good news. But before we get to the good news, let's look at the bad news. Romans 3.28 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means everyone in this room, everyone outside this city, everyone in the world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means in the eyes of God, we're all sinners. Isaiah 53.5, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we know that there's a path that we should be following, but we have all gone astray. We've chosen by our own actions to disobey God, to go contrary to his will. In our fallen nature, we are not able to keep God's law. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from each other, and it has fractured creation itself, Romans 8. Another truth that is important to remember is that God is holy and that he is set apart, and there is no one like him. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So there exists this huge gap between humanity and God, and that gap has been caused by our sin, our sinful nature, our sinful actions. And so when God presents the solution to this problem in his son Jesus dying on the cross, the solution indicates to us that the problem is very serious. The Son of God had to die on the cross in order for sin to be solved. So think of this illustration. This afternoon you go home, you go to the kitchen, and you see that there's ants on the counter. And you say, oh, what are these ants doing here? So you pick up the phone, you call an exterminator, and you say, there's ants in my house, could you please come over? Exterminator shows up, and he says, that's not an ant, that's a termite. So they keep searching the rest of the house, they inspect the house, and they find that Termites are under the floorboards, they're in the walls, they've eaten up the foundation, and your house is about to collapse on itself. So the problem is much bigger than you thought. You thought it was an ant, and that maybe he would just like spray insecticide, but it's much bigger than that. The problem is that it was much bigger than you thought. So the solution now, you have to tear down your house, you have to move out, he has to put caution tape, and that's the solution. The solution is bigger than the problem. What you thought was less. And so in the same way, the way we think about our sin is that our sin is less. But in God's eyes, sin is so serious that he had to send his only begotten son to come and die on the cross for our sins. And at the same time, God is showing his love for us because as sinners, we do not deserve God's grace. We do not deserve his mercy. We deserve his holy justice and his holy wrath. So him sending his son is him demonstrating how much he loves us. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in, in what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement, what happens is that Christ takes your spot on the cross. You deserve to be there on account of your sin, but Christ takes your place. Jesus' death on the cross propitiated or satisfied God's wrath. What we are owed is God's justice, but Christ steps in. He steps in and he takes the punishment for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body. And so union with Christ does not mean that, okay, Christ is Christ died on the cross for our sins, and so Christ is over here and I'm over here, and I have to work my way to uh, be united to Christ. Union with Christ means that when you believe in Jesus, you are united to Christ. And so what he accomplishes on the cross, victory over death, uh, vindication in his resurrection, union with God, his eternal love that he has shared with the Father from the very beginning, all of that becomes yours by faith if you trust in him. So the Christian life is not external, individualistic, like, okay, I'm going to try and be a better person, or I'm going to try and please God by my own actions. The Christian faith is about putting your trust in Jesus because he was perfect. He lived the perfect life that you and I never could. Jesus defeated the devil, he overcame the world, and he perfectly kept the law. And so by doing that, he won for us justification, which is being declared righteous in the presence of God. That means when you appear in the presence of God, God counts you as righteous because you trust in Jesus. Sanctification, he cleanses us from our idols. He cleanses us from our sins. Adoption, he, he, he gives us a new identity. Instead of being children of wrath, he, he sees us as children of God. Now we're children of God. And finally, glorification, where in heaven we are with God forever and there is no more sin. Union with Christ means this. It means that Christ takes all our sin and gives us all his perfection. He takes all our dying and gives us all his life. He takes all our forsakenness by the holiness of God because of our sin. And he gives us the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He takes the smiting of God's holy anger, and instead he gives us the welcome and delight of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the cross, Jesus takes our shame, our fear, our apathy, and he transforms it to joy, comfort, security, and peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning we've been made right by faith, we have peace with God. So it's not through our efforts, but having being united to Christ by faith, we have peace with God. So now the sin, the sin problem has been taken care of. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, the Christian life is not let me try and be a better person today. Let me make resolutions next year to be a better person. The Christian life is abiding in Christ. It is, it is being in the vine. It is relying on God's truth. It is resting in what Christ has done for you. You did not deserve it, but he 
came down. He took the corridor down the stairs. He became a man. He he grew up. He listened to his parents, which is pretty hard to do when you're a teenager sometimes. He he lived the perfect life that you and I, have. we never could live up to those standards. And finally, he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead bodily so that even when we're united in him, we are sharing in his victory in his resurrection and then in his ascension. Ephesians 2, 6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So the question of you going to heaven is the same question as whether Jesus can go to heaven because when Jesus ascended into heaven, it wasn't a question of uh, what are your credentials. When Jesus ascended to heaven, they let him in because it's his home. That's where he's from. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And when you have faith in Jesus, you are united to him in that same way. And so when you appear in heaven, you're let in because you are united to Christ. And this is the good news. You will not find this teaching in any world religion, any philosophy. This is what makes Christianity stand out. And the gospel is the good news that says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. The gospel is the good news that although we have by our own actions separated ourselves from God, he has united us by faith to his son who is perfect. The gospel is receiving a radical welcome that brings us into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we are not only granted pardon from sin, but also the power to live a life that is pleasing to God. So in your struggle against sin, it's not you going against it by yourself, but you have God on your side. The very God of the universe gives you his own Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is how you're able to fight sin in your life. And so when... when Pastor Moore was preaching on a new identity in Christ in Romans 6, and it says, um, we were buried, therefore, through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may walk in the newness of life. And so you are dead. So the Christian life, again, I have to reiterate this because it's very important to understand, is not that you are trying to be the best version of yourself. It's that the best version of yourself has died and now you've been joined to Christ and his perfect righteousness. And now you have a new king, a new master, a new Lord. And this new king, this new master has nail marks in his hands. And so when he tells you what to do and what not to do, you know that he's saying it from a place of love because he died for you. He took the nails through his hands and his feet, and he loves you. John 6, 47 says this, and I'll close with this. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So friends, if you're here today and you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, then you have present tense eternal life. And when you are in Christ, the promise found in Romans 8, 38, 39, which says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you. Meaning, when you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And this is what gives us eternal assurance of God's 
love for us, eternal assurance of salvation. And you can say along with the Apostle Paul and truly mean it that you have been crucified with Christ and the life that you now live, it's not the old you. So when the devil, the world, your own passions, your own flesh tries to remind you about those things, you say, no, I have a new king and his name is King Jesus and he gave his life for me. Like the song says, when Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. So three applications as we close. Uh, the first is participate in the life of the local church. First Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So remember a few years ago, there was no church because there was a pandemic going on. So God considers this gathering of saints, the singing, the praying, the preaching, the worshiping, he considers it very precious. So participate in the life of the local church. When the apostle Paul is on his way, well, Saul is on his way to persecuting Christians, and Jesus appears and he says, why are you persecuting me? Persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus. And so in the same way, serving the church is serving Jesus. Prioritize that in your life. Read the Bible, Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The average American spends eight hours in front of a screen, and the young average American spends 10,000 hours playing video games before the age of 21. 10,000 hours. Uh, young people, um, I don't mean to go all John Piper on you, but please do not waste your life. <laughs> do not let video games, do not let entertainment, do not let TikTok be your identity. Let Christ be your identity. Be converted. Turn to him because having faith in him is what matters. This is what has eternal ramifications for your soul. Turn to him and find him to be the perfect savior because he is. And this honestly goes for everyone in the room. Take an inventory of your day and see uh, how much you're spending in the word. And finally, pray without ceasing. Mark 1.35 says Jesus woke up early in the morning to pray. A lot could be said about prayer, uh, but I think that's enough. The perfect, sinless son of God prayed. How much more should we, Right? And all this, all this, the ability to be able to pray, to read the Bible, to participate in the life of the local church, Christ bought all this with his blood. So be encouraged, saints. And if you're here today and this is not a reality for you, I would ask, I would pray earnestly that you would turn to Christ, you would repent of your sins, that you would see that the identity that matters is the one that Christ gives you, not the one that the world gives you or anything else. Amen? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with thankful hearts. Thank you for your kindness in seeing us through this year. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. I pray, dear God, that even as we close out this year, that you would be with us and that, Lord, we would never forget to count our blessings in the many ways in which you have blessed us and given us uh, blessings upon blessing, Lord. We thank you for your kindness in hearing our prayers. Thank you for the new life in the church. Thank you for all the healings. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here 
who does not know you, that you would be pleased to save them, you would pour out your Holy Spirit, and that you would cause them to be born again today. And that, Lord, in everything that we do as a church, as North Shore Baptist Church, we would always fix our eyes on you, and that in everything that we do, Lord, we may live for you and obey your commandments and love you earnestly because you have first loved us and you have won the great victory. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.